So this morning, after the recitation of the Parimokha, I gave a brief talk about silence. And ultimately, silence speaks for itself, since it doesn't have any words. So the words that you hear from me, the background, the substratum, the default position is silence. And so the practice of meditation is recognizing this very simple reality that everyone is capable of doing. Sometimes in monastic life you get the impression that you have to be a highly attained person with a lot of barami, a lot of accumulated virtues, special special person to become enlightened. So these kind of images of you've got to be special or sp spiritually inclined or uh, have accumulated virtues through your life, previous lives, are all words in the silence. And when we cling to the words, like uh, for myself, noticing in my experience as a monk over many years uh, the, how one accepts the words that, that that you hear from senior monks, from teachers, from scholars, and identify with those words. Because as a person, as a personality, as a separate individual, the personality doesn't feel special. At least mine doesn't. So, so the, this personality is always getting in the way because even though these words of wisdom from the Buddha are their words of wisdom, but they're, they're not wise in themselves. They're empty phenomena. They arise and they cease like all other words. But they're directional signs. So like the, when this, the scholastic side of Theravada Buddhism is all words, is a huge collection of, of uh, suttas and commentaries, and Abhidhamma and so forth that, to be, that need to be respected. But the whole point of all that, of the Tripitaka, the sacred books of uh, Buddhism, is toward the here and now, the, the 
awakening to the reality of conscious awareness. So that's why I emphasize this, how, you know, I've heard so many people say that they don't have enough barami, which is a Pali word for a kind of accumulated virtues. And of course, as long as you believe that you don't have enough barami, enough accumulated virtues, then you'll always operate from that position, no matter how many years you spend on a zafu meditating. Because that is a basic delusion that, that what our personality says is what we are. So the, the advice we get from others, from teachers, from scriptures, you know, is to, is to be considered, reflected upon, practiced, observing that, that even the wisest words from the scriptures are words, and words are empty phenomena. They arise and cease. We call them sankharas or conditions or phenomena. And with that which is aware of phenomena, this awareness, conscious awareness, isn't a sankhara. So the whole point of, see, of trying to get enlightened as a person, seeking enlightenment through your personality, through desire to to get something you don't have is impossible. So after 55, this is my 55th pansa, 55th year as a bhikkhu, my personality is, is still a, a phenomena that a phenomenon that arises and ceases according to conditions. It can't be enlightened. So I encourage you to observe the personality. Not, to, not in a critical way, but just to be aware of how, how you see yourself as a, as a physical being, as a physical form, as a male or female, as a monk or a nun. All these, these perceptions that we cling to and, and operate from and suffer from can be witnessed. They're, they're all sankharas, they're all phenomena that come and go and change according to other conditions. The immutable reality of awareness, conscious awareness. The still mind is all that needs to be known, is a quote I read many years ago in some words of wisdom who, I forget who said them, but it's always resonated with me that still mind is all that needs to be known because <clears throat> with organized religions, they all seem so complicated and fraught with all kinds of, of uh, advice and opinions and views. But the still mind, what is that? You know, is, it, is it the mind ever still? 
And when I use the word mind, I, you know, it's a generic term for, it can be, mean consciousness or anything mental, but I'm trying to define it more as mental states that arise and cease. And the word consciousness is more like the, the uh, the pure consciousness that is present here and now, that is silent, where the noises of the mental states arise and cease in the stillness. Just like the space in this temple, you know, say it's empty and then people come in, they sit down, they, they uh, fill it up and they, after this talk, they will get up and leave and then we'll consider the temple empty. The same with, with emptiness or space. We, we don't create it intentionally. We're not, we're not uh, here to judge space as good, bad, right, or wrong, but it is, gives us this, this opportunity to manifest in forms. If, we, if there's no space, there's no, there's no possibility for manifestation of forms of our physical bodies, of this temple itself, of the planet Earth, the sun, moon, and stars. So consciousness is at the form, gives it the, the priority the leadership position. Without consciousness, there can be no space, or with no space, there's no forms. And just by reflecting in, in this order, we take our stand with silent, with a silent consciousness, which we begin to notice as we open wide, kind of open awareness, open consciousness. Uh, yeah, best described as listening. Like when we just listen to the sounds of nature, to, <clears throat> to the silence. You know, you're not going to find silence as an object to, to listen to uh, through effort or, or through the concentration. You open to it. So it's this openness, an open listening, wide open receptivity of awareness, conscious awareness, that one begins to trust in the awareness itself, in this open awareness, rather than in all the views, opinions you, have, you hold for yourself or what you hear from others. So this is like, an, you know, reflecting in this way is an investigation of our reality, each individual form sitting here in the temple. You know, we feel we're the center of the universe, even though we, we may not perceive ourselves as that. But at this moment, 
you're all, as I'm sitting here looking at you, looking at the temple itself, it's all objects of sight. And then we project on those objects, whether we, we like them, don't like them, they're good, bad, right and wrong. And that takes thought. We have to think to create these, uh, these impressions of good and bad, right and wrong, true and false, beautiful and ugly. In the silence of conscious awareness, there's no language. Language ceases in it. Thought ceases in it. Emotions cease in it. And what's left when, when all your thoughts, emotions, memories have ceased is timeless awareness here and now. And then recognizing this, appreciating this, this is what we really respect when we talk about Dhamma. When we take refuge in Dhamma, then this Dhamma is, is another word. But it's translated as ultimate reality or ultimate truth or reality itself. But those are all, uh, you know, English translations of the Pali word Dhamma. So just trying to find the exact English equivalent to the Pali word that's written in the scriptures Dhamma is is a noble effort to try to be accurate in definition, but definitions are, are more words. Behind the words, underlying the words, the thoughts, the emotions of what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think, and feel is a silence. Now talk about sound of silence or listening to the silence it's an attitude of open, attentive awareness here and now. So it's nothing you seek, you can't. You know, people try it when they talk about sound of silence, it can be misleading because then people see it as a sound they've got to find. And then they, you know, they think of some kind of subtle, vibration or you know we want we we try to define it as something you know that that a, a course or ordinary conscious person wouldn't be aware of so even the word sound of silence can be misleading because silence isn't a sound it's reality itself and from this silence, as you trust it more and more, then you, you realize you're not what you think, what you believe, what you, uh, with your physical form, your age, your gender, your nationality, your race, your class, your social position. All these are, are phenomena that arise and cease that are artificial conditions empty, when we see them as empty, 
then we, we no longer operate from the conditioned realm, from prejudices, biases, whatever they might be, from liberal to conservative to, to right and wrong, all the other term, terminologies we use to ex express what we, we like, what we don't like, or approve or don't approve of. So in my own experience over the years, and looking back at some of my early years at Chithurst or in Amaravati, just uh, writing the word silence over and over in notebooks. I think there are still notebooks somewhere around with just pages of just the word silence written out. And so I deliberately use the word silence, write it out with the sound of silence, with this, this reality behind the, the writing, behind the word itself, so that I accustom myself to silence. When you think about it and try to find it, then you get caught in doubt because what is, what is it? It's, what exactly is it, and is it in the scriptures? Is it is it just imagination? Is it worth anything? You know, then we get caught in doubt, or am I deluding myself? <clears throat> so the first three fetters are very important in the ten fetters paradigm to realize stream entry. So stream entry is recognizing the silence. Being aware of it and, and seeing it as, as a path rather than, than uh, any thought or, or kind of definition of the path. Because silence is not really a path, it's here and now. So it doesn't go anywhere. But it is a restful position. Peaceful. It can be described as blissful. When you say these words bliss, sometimes, you know, in an age where people take drugs, they think of bliss is some kind of far out experience. But this is behind the extremities of any possibility. It's ordinary. It's reality here and now. And so over the years, just reminding myself when, when we built this temple, <clears throat> The architect, before we started building it, the architect came to see me and, and asked me what kind of temple I wanted uh, to build here at Amravati. And, and I was just being facetious, just saying something to, asking the impossible. So I asked him to build a, a temple, a place where stressed out 
Londoners could come and they immediately feel silent. So this temple has, yeah, has that ability, you know, it is a silent, spacious building. But the space was always here before the temple. Before the school was built in 1939, the space hasn't changed at all. It's just the conditions arising in the space. Suddenly, the old buildings that were here before this temple were taken away, destroyed, and this new building was, was built in this location, in this space. Space is, is an important reflection also because you can perceive space. Like you notice the space in the temple, the space between the monks, the nuns, the, the space around the shrine, the space between the pillars, the space outside the temple. And so, because space is perceivable and concepts, earth, fire, water, and air are perceivable through the senses. The senses and their objects, the, the objects of sight, the objects of sound, of, of listening, the, uh, the objects of smell, odors, and so forth. These, these senses themselves are objects rather than subjects. The body itself is an object rather than a subject. What is the subject of your life is silent awareness. So it's a process of of breaking through the delusions that one acquires through the through the uh, initial ego development, the, the ego, uh, as we use the the word here, is sakyaditi or the sense of a separate self. So whenever this sense of a separate self arises, there's a knowing of it. It is, it, it, it's not like we don't ever have an ego. We get rid of the ego. We get rid of the cultural, social, religious conditioning. It's not we get rid of anything. We don't get rid of language, thoughts, or emotions. We're not trying to annihilate anything. And this the Buddha made very clear in his first sermon. It's not to seek eternal life and, and permanent happiness through the senses because that's impossible or to, to just annihilate the senses and their objects, but to understand the senses are conditions that arise and cease. The objects of the senses are conditions that arise and cease. And by this constant reference and, and reflection, after a while we no longer have to think about it because we know this. You get what we call jnana dasana or insight knowledge, kind of, it's no longer just intellectual knowledge or knowledge you acquired from books or from teachers, from culture, from religion.
you can say you really know who you are then. You know what you're not. And this knowing is, is not a form of knowing through words. It's, it's more like unknowing anything. It's pure consciousness, empty, pure, perfect. Aware of the sankaras, the conditions that arise and cease and in, through these forms, through the senses, but it is ultimate freedom to be free from the limitation of birth and death, of the confined limitations of your physical form, your sensory uh, conditions, your, your emotional habits. Because all these are the reason why there is so much conflict in the world, why human beings find it so difficult to cooperate and get along because uh, even if we have the same, same culture, the same religion, personalities are all different. You know, they're not, you can't you can make somebody into a person that you like or that you approve of. So when we, you know, like a dictatorships or authoritative leaders trying to force everybody to conform in every possible way, you can promote the conformity, such as in this tradition we wear these robes, the conformity to the Vinaya and so forth, is about action and speech. Uh, we all agree how to live within the restraint of these moral principles of these standards that we call a vinaya. But mentally, we can't conform to, to just, you know, unless we, we reinforce, it, reinforce it into a cult, a cult that's based on fear of punishment. If you don't believe and think the way I do, then you're, you're an apostate, you're a heretic is something bad. So the Buddha never intended Buddhism to be a cult of any sort, because it's not a, it's the teaching is based on the Four Noble Truths, which is about investigation, looking into the way things are. So this opportunity here in Amravati is opportunity to investigate life, not just to get by in it or just conform in, through action and speech, but, but the, the beauty of this life is the in constant encouragement to investigate what are you really? What is your true self? Are you just this limited form with, with these habits? As I grew older, I began to be so bored with myself as a personality. By the time I was 30 years old, I was really fed up, bored with myself as my personality seemed so limited and so repetitious and, and immature. Because you know that if personality forms in your youth, your childhood, your, your adolescence, 
And some people never grow up emotionally, even at age 80, 90, 100, because they're stuck with, with the same personality they formed when they were children. The same biases, same prejudices, same opinions, because these are habits. The thinking, the thinking, thinking itself is a habit. Whatever language you think in is still a habit. That means that you acquire it and you become used to it and you use this habit to, to make value judgments about yourself and others and the world around us. So the first fetter of Sakyaditi, the ego, You know, you can be a positive person, a pers kind of positive personality, a negative personality, depressive personality, an opportunist, a, a paranoid personality. These are all forms that, words that we apply to, to various conditions that we experience. So each one of us has a different personality. And that's a habit. We can't help it, being the person, personalities like this. And that's where the Vinaya helps, because in terms of action and speech, we can conform. We agree to live within the restraint of action and speech. But our personalities can't be conform. It's impossible. And we project an ideal onto each other of how, what a senior monk, a senior nun should be. As, as a, if they were truly wise and enlightened, they would fit our image of, of a wise personality rather than understanding that that the personalities are not a real person. They're just habit patterns that we, we can modify through, through wisdom, worldly wisdom, through understanding. We can see, understand, when we talk about selfishness, selfishness, this sense of me first, or what I want is most important, and, and uh, we can be aware of that. So I would, uh, I would, uh, because as an ideal, as a person, I never, I was, I'm a, I didn't want to be considered a selfish person. I didn't want to consider myself selfish. So every time I felt selfish, I'd feel guilty about it. Feel that, this was that I'm not, that I shouldn't feel this selfish thought or this selfish way. And that's because ideally I, I didn't want to be a selfish person, but sometimes selfishness is just the way things are. And in wisdom and understanding, we begin to see that, that selfishness is like this. And we don't have to act from it or speak on it, 
but we recognize it. We're not trying to get rid of it, but when we no longer cling to it, when we understand it is for what it really is as a condition arising and ceasing due to other conditions, when we begin to really appreciate this, this way of reflection, then we, we're not attached to it. So we don't suffer from selfishness and we're not trying to become an, a person who's not selfish. We're liberating ourselves from the whole personality illusion that we tend to operate from. Fear, another strong emotions that we that all human beings have, and all animals. And there's a lot, as a, as a physical form, there's a lot to be frightened of. We were very, very kind of fragile and delicate animal form of our bodies, easily damaged, hurt, diseases, wild animals, Earthquakes, fires, floods. Every day in the news you read about people be, being uh, killed through catastrophes, natural catastrophes. Let me wonder why, why is it that, you know, what is it like when you're dead? Because we, we believe that, that life is, is our physical form. And some people live in places where they have droughts, famines, wars, endless wars, earthquakes, floods and fires, all these. And they talk about it in, in the news about climate change and rather dire warnings, rather depressing uh, pictures for the future because there's a lot to fear uh, physically. So fear is seeing, you know, when we think of the ego not wanting to be afraid of anything. You know, I'm, I have a lot of fear and I shouldn't. And then we, we, you know, we live a life based on the fact that I'm somehow cowardly or not a real man or something wrong with me because I have a lot of fears. But even though there's a lot to fear on the externals, we create a lot of fear in our minds through memory, through possibilities of failure, of humiliation, of losing, of being rejected, of getting diseases, getting cancer. Even before these take place, we can we can be caught in, in just the, the habitual fear patterns of all the possibilities of misery and, and failure in the future through thinking. But behind those thoughts, which are habit patterns individuals develop, is the silence. And that's what you'll find your liberation 
through the silence, not through trying to become a fearless personality because you won't succeed at that. Greed, another strong primal emotion, desire in all its forms. So this way of consciousness and space allow these things to manifest. Greed, hatred, fear, delusions of all sorts, they're manifestations. <clears throat> they're not real persons. They're not what you are ultimately. But when we cling to these manifestations without understanding them, then we suffer. So the first noble truth is about suffering because it's to be understood, not to be rejected or destroyed in any way. It's just this realm that we experience through the forms, through this eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind are all about procreation, survival on planet Earth. So that is when we talk about the real world, this is what most people mean, the, the external forms, the real world is what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think, what we feel. The real world is what, what people consider normal, ultimate, or, or not ultimate, but reality is, is what I think, what I believe in. And these kind of thoughts and beliefs are to be investigated with wisdom, to be seen in terms of thoughts arise and cease. Feelings arise and cease. When something ceases, where does it go? If you, in, uh, in the thinking mind, you know you have one thought leads on to another thought. So we have grammar, we have the, the uh, habits that we develop through, through learning our language, all based on grammatical patterns that are considered acceptable or not. So we, we get caught in the thinking process as our reality, as the real world. And this is why the, we do suffer, even, in, in, even when we have comfortable lives and security uh, in terms of what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and think. But no matter how wealthy or how comfortable you might be, it's still, you, we grow old, there's COVID pandemics, there's possibilities as death at the end of the life, and all of these are ignored or we want to get rid of the COVID pandemic, we don't want disease, we don't want cancer, we don't want to be sick, we don't want to grow old. So these not wanting to grow old and get sick or have cancer are thoughts that arise and cease in the mind. 
in a consciousness. And that's the, just the, the, clarifying that this is the way it is. That there's nothing wrong with these thoughts. They can be wrong, or but they're not right, they're not wrong, but they arise and cease because they're habit patterns that we can be aware of. Are we just habits? Each one of us a separate habit form and we see ourselves through the differences, through different personal projections that we uh, use in terms of relating to each other or seeing ourselves in terms of good and bad, right and wrong, intelligent or stupid, beautiful or ugly, or male or female, are very caught up in, the, in these identities as, as, and gender identities. And these are all words, all concepts that arise and cease in consciousness. But what remains when all these have ceased? The cessation, Naroda, in terms of the Third Noble Truth, the suffering ceases, it's not permanent, it's not self. So behind all the noise, the problems, the wars, the earthquakes, the pandemics, the good fortunes, the, the, the winning the prizes, getting the accolades, the titles, the prestige, the good fortune, the bad fortune, is a silence that is blissful, where none of these conditions, no matter how wonderful they might be momentarily, they, they do arise and cease, and they're, they're mutable, they're not dependable, they're not stable. So the samsara vata, or the the conditioned realm, its very nature is instability, unsatisfactoriness. And that's why it's futile to seek stability in the conditioned realm, but because it can't be stable, because its nature is change. What is immutable, what is stable is awareness, silence. And as you trust in this more and more, you, you have to keep trusting. And this trust is not, not like believing in what I'm saying, but investigating, finding this for yourself. You find, you begin to realize this for yourself, it's, it's yana in Pali words. It's, it's not acquired knowledge, it's insight. It's vipassana, looking into the nature of things. You free yourself, you see the limitation, the suffering you create through attachments to conditions that are inevitably changing and unstable.
So then, bowing our meditation means uh, the silent mind And then you kind of open to it. You don't seek it. You don't try to find something called the silent mind. It's learning to open, relax and open, like listening in this wide open awareness. And by appreciating that silence, beginning to, to love the silence, to, to really respect the silence. And it doesn't say anything, but it is what it is. It's like this. And, it, and out of habits, we ignore the silence. <clears throat> because you know cultures don't don't teach us about silence they teach us about thinking and about culture conditioning and right and wrong good and bad about religion about morals and integrity about politics you can get degrees from universities prestigious universities and acquire all kinds of knowledge. Wonderful knowledge that is terribly interesting, exciting, but not liberating. So the silent mind is all that needs to be known. This silent awareness is so simple. Sakyaditi, the ego, is not simple. It's complicated in that we have, there's so much interest in psychotherapies and psychology trying to figure out how to deal with all the different personality problems that, that one encounters. Trying to straighten out or develop a, a good personality or a normal personality to try to free, from, free ourselves from uh, paranoia from fear. From all the kind of miserable states that we create through thinking, through habits that, uh, that create this sense of fear about the future, about oneself, and guilt and remorse about the past, So all the guilt is about the past, isn't it? You feel because you said things or did things that you, that you consider bad or other people consider bad, then we feel guilty. So guilt is a creation through thinking. Silence, there's no guilt. Guilt arises and ceases in the silence. So what is it that is aware of the presence and absence is, is conscious awareness, the silent mind, 
is all that needs to be known. So in terms of my own insight, this is, I'm sharing this with you because the result of these many years meditating in this form is a silent, silent conscious awareness is natural, it's not created, it's not personal. So it's not just imagined or something very high and remote or after 55 years of monasticism I still suffer from fear and selfishness, anxiety, worry, these conditions can still arise. But there's a knowing that they, that what they are. There's no, no effort, no habit, uh, intentional habit of clinging to them anymore. So it's not like you get rid of your habits and you, you know, they, you suddenly become this totally purified conscious awareness with no personality, no memories, no thoughts about the future. That's an ideal. But the, the Buddha means, the word Buddha means knowing the way things are and these forms you know, even you have these insights, the forms still operate, you still grow old. And what they call vipaka kama, or the karmic habits that you formed in the past, still arise and cease. But they lose their significance. They lose their importance. So when good thoughts arise, we appreciate that, but we don't cling to goodness or badness. We don't try to get rid of the evil forces, trying to get rid of fear, trying to become a perfect person. We can see through all these illusions that we formed in our lives because your true nature you know, when we think of perfection, when the word perfection, what is perfect, whole, and complete? It's Dhamma. So we use this word, Pali word Dhamma, for that which is beyond description. Even perfection is a bit, uh, you know, of an illusion. So the wonder of it all is you find your true nature, your true nature is Dhamma. And that's a big relief because as a person, there's always something to worry about. As a member of society, there's always problems, crises. In the, as a living form on planet Earth, there's possibilities for destruction and and terrible things happening, universal collapse, Armageddon, the end of the world, meteorites slamming into planet Earth. There's all these possibilities 
that one thinks about, about the future. But when you wake up to realize your true nature is deathless and perfect, then you don't create problems around the, the endless possibilities and changes that one experiences through the body, through the forms, through the sensory forms that we experience, or through the personal habits. So my efforts here are to encourage you, not to define you or to tell you what to do, or to make judgments, value judgments about you, but to encourage you to, to awaken to reality, to discover for yourself your true nature, which is not personal, it's not, a, it's not limited into a, a personal form. It's what we all share. So then there's the, the uh, Brahma-viharas manifest quite naturally. Our relationship to the world around us, to the society that we live in is loving kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity. So these are not ideals that we try to cultivate through thinking and through some kind of ideal practice, but natural re responses to situations that we inevitably meet and encounter with these forms till, they, till their final demise. So I offer this for your reflection for this afternoon.